0: Hello and welcome to the Cool Tried podcast. Uh, my name is Alan O'Donovan, I'm your host. I'm here with Bernard Pender. How are you doing? And Shane Corr. Good evening. So, uh, we'll just hop right into it and uh, we'll ask the first question. So, Shane, tell us what it was like growing up on the uh, north side of Dublin.
1: So, I was born in um, 1969 and at that time... Um, Fianna Fáil was in its heyday of building houses across both social housing and um, private housing across the north side of Dublin and that's where my parents, um, Jimmy and Christine, settled in um, 1968 and I came along shortly afterwards, um, grew up in Rohini, fabulous place, close to all sorts of amenities you know, the sea, Dolly Mount, St. Anne's Park, house. so it was a great place for a child to grow up
2: and talk to me then. Obviously, you went to school close by.
1: So I went to Saint Mary's School when I was an infant, and then, as you would know, you progressed in first or second class on to Saint Benedict's, and from there you went to the De La Salle School for secondary school. So
2: you've you've gone through school. You've had the grounding. We we both went to a Christian Brothers uh, school in the De La Salle. and I know the Christian Brothers were. I think it was nearly. It was nearly at the end of the Christian Brothers era. When we went through and did leave inserts in in the De La Salle, talk to me about you know when you came came out of there, um, and where what did you do then after that?
1: So I suppose, as you say, I moved up from St Benedict's School to De La Salle, which was obviously run by the De La Salle Brothers. But by the time I got there, the Maris Sisters were also um, administrating and teaching at the school because. I think around about 1979, girls started attending the De La Salle school. And what was amazing, what was amazing I found in, in my trip um, through the school system was that the religious teaching stayed more or less the same. I mean, obviously, it became more geared towards adolescence and secondary school and the problems that might go along with that. But what never changed was that you mentioned the, the social mix. What never changed was. There was never any discussion of, you know, that some people were poorer, and maybe they shouldn't be poorer. And when I was in St. Benedict's School, on my first day in St. Benedict's School, um, a child came up to me, who I later learned, and bec- he became a very good friend, who lived in social housing, and he said, you live in the posh houses. And I didn't know what he meant. I'd never heard the word posh before. And I said, I denied it straight, I don't even know what the word posh meant. I just denied it. I said, no, I don't. And he said, he said no, you do. You live in the posh houses. I saw you coming out of a posh house. So I had to go home and ask my mother, and, you know, what was this business about posh houses? And she told me that, um, basically, that the government owned the social houses and that the banks owned our houses. <laughs> and that was the only difference. And she said, never believed there's any difference yeah. you know, between you, one person and another based yeah. on, on where you live. She said, these aren't posh houses. And I can tell you, there's people living in social houses who have better incomes than we do. Um, she wouldn't have obviously said it quite as blandly as that, but she made it very clear to to ignore any any sort of social differences or to allow myself to be guided by an accent or by where somebody lived. and. At that point I began to realise what, you know, there's a difference between what is right and wrong as far as what the church teach and, and what my parents teach and really, you know, what is right and wrong in real life. So it was in those formative years that my my ethics so, took on my own um, fingerprint. Um, and when I noticed those social differences and the difficulties that some people had in just just staying up with the rest of us because of where they were born or because of a particular view that a school or a priest took of
0: them, so sorry to interrupt there, but just to move it on, like we were talking before before you we went to air there um about how you're a vegetarian, and I think it, I sort of see a link there between finding your values when you're youth and later on in life having such a sort of it's a unique sort of a thing being a vegetarian and so tell us about how you got to that point and
1: yeah it's a, it's a good question. Um, I suppose I went through secondary school um, and I was picking up things consciously and unconsciously and subconsciously. But one of the things I obviously picked up was um, we had an English teacher who was um, a vegetarian. Now She was the classic looking um, sort of pale, supremely fit, skinny vegetarian. Um, And although she never really discussed it in class, we were all aware that she was a vegetarian. And I, I, I used to wonder when I was 16 or 17 how somebody could possibly give up eating meat because I was a big fan, I was a big fan of the fries, I was a big fan of the steak, I was a big fan of um, hot dogs, everything I would eat, um, apart from liver. <laughs> um, so I suppose it was around, I think it was around the time of my 20th birthday, or just, just, just before that, my birthday came on the 27th of December. And at that stage, we were living on ham and bacon and turkey sandwiches and my mother used to have this rule that anything that wasn't eaten by the twenty seventh went out of the fridge and into the bin. I remember taking out this half eaten turkey and this you know lump of ham and just thinking what a crazy waste of an animal mm. um
2: was it was it as simple as that it was
1: it was it was as simple as that, and whereas going back to that English teacher, where I would have wondered how on earth anybody could give up meat. I was shocked with how easily I did it, and I was never tempted to eat meat after that ever
2: i i I heard a it's an urban myth is it or it, it may be a conspiracy theory, and we might talk about conspiracies later on, but I heard a, a rumor that it, you just did it for a bet
1: yeah yeah you see this 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 is a conspiracy theory <laughs> so typically what happens in a family situation like this is is you know if if you suddenly announce you're a vegetarian it's seen as a challenge to you you know to the generalissimo and he wasn't wasn't happy and he wasn't believing that it could be done so he bet me he bet me 20 quid which was a fair amount of money in the 1990s um that i wouldn't last two weeks but of course i did i did last two weeks and i lasted till today and i I never collected the bet either so
2: so you 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 basically announced to your family yeah I'm not going to eat meat anymore yeah and I think you know when I when I look back on on that I remember the time when you you said oh, I'm not eating meat anymore and I think everybody sort of didn't believe you and it, you know I think one of the things I learned from it was that when you said something you could believe it mm. so I'm here now. You're, it was around your early 20s. You're, it you're was in your my f- 20th birthday. You're in uh. your 50s now. So 32 years later, you, s- you still haven't collected a bet. So <laughs> yeah. you didn't do it. You didn't do it for money. It wasn't money. about the money. It wasn't no. about the money. Um, you, you did it because you, you, you sort of had a realisation that this is yeah. wrong, if, yeah. if I'm to give it an understanding. And then... You've stuck on that pathway for thirty-two years. Thirty-two years. So, yeah. talk to me about veganism or vegetarianism. is seen as a, a low-carbon lifestyle. It's seen yeah. as it's seen as one of the key pillars of if we're going to tackle climate action and climate change. Yeah, that we need to eat less meat. We yeah. need less animals on the planet. Yeah. You know, methane being a big, a big polluter or big carbon emitter, causing global warming. So, talk to me about. That transition to a vegetarian Obviously you were living at home at the the time So your mum was probably cooking lots of vegetables Yes, so it,
1: it, it it was quite outrageous I mean The late 1980s and the early 1990s Weren't the most affluent time in Ireland And certainly my mother was always looking to see How she could feed six people You know, at a minimum cost And to treat everybody fairly In their likes and dislikes and really, dislikes dislikes weren't catered to for a, a greater extent because the money wasn't there for everybody to have their own diet. But what my mother did was incredible cause, and what my mother had off had always done throughout my life. My formative years was showing me how to, um, you know, to make a lot of a little. And okay. my mother was an excellent cook. She was also she could bake anything. Um. So, I mean. It, it required extra effort from her. So
2: this is quite interesting, actually. It's an interesting point that you've... So even at that early stage, budgets would have been... And I know you went on to, to do accountancy. So budgets around food, budgets around waste, would have been important. There was, so, no,
1: there was no waste. There was no waste. Simple as that. Simple as that.
2: Like I can remember, like if I, I look at it from my own point of view, I can remember... We always seem to have set days for set meals, yep. and that that really revolved around you did a Sunday roast on a Monday, mm. and you'd get the sandwiches out of that. And then if you yep. cooked a chicken, maybe or whatever yep. on a Sunday, then you'd have <coughs> your sandwiches, and maybe you'd have a chicken salad then that night. So, so you've 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 your mother's really given you a good grounding in, you know, no waste sourcing food. Yeah. So talk to me about how how easy it is or how hard it is to. To, to get the foods that you need to be?
1: So w- when I started being, w- when, when I became a vegetarian, I knew nothing about diet whatsoever. We knew about three square meals a day. I mean, we, we probably knew it was best to eat a combination of, of meat and vegetables and preferably not red meat. And we, we all knew fish was healthy. So we knew those things. Um, so my mother had to rebalance my diet. At first she encouraged me to eat fish. Which I did for three or four weeks. And then I realised I was codding myself. Nice. No, wow. no no pun nice. intended. No, we don't no, have a no, drum roll there. No, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, so I stopped at the fish's bell. Uh, but were, were
2: you codding yourself in terms of that you were more interested in the animal's life? Is that the motive here? N-
1: no. So I suppose um, I, I had a great interest in animals since I was a child. Okay. I was fascinated by animals, cats, dogs. Okay. Frogs, tadpoles, everything was completely fascinated with them. So suppose ordinarily you you wouldn't encounter a fish walking along the street, um, and I didn't. My focus was on was on these products that we were eating that had a face that I could that I could picture. I mean, a cow or pig. Okay. They have you know, and they have faces and characteristics and sounds. Okay. So really by the third or fourth week since, after i decided to stop eating meat i realized that um fish i couldn't i couldn't eat fish anymore either
2: so you you've been living a plant based yeah diet for the bonds of 30 years entirely so talk to me about going to local supermarket and
1: yeah so so going to the local supermarket exactly it, it, I I previously I went with a list that my mother would have written. I would have been in the company of my mother, and she would have said, "Pick that, pick that, pick that." Now I was going and having to look at things that I had never, you know, looked at before, like avocados. I didn't know what what to do with an avocado.
0: Okay. Until
1: I peeled one. Okay. And. And
0: tried it. That's hard to believe nowadays with the yeah. prevalence of avocados. Is, everywhere. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I know you're a big advocate in terms of shop local. So yeah. I, I, I know we, we talked off the air about, you know, food miles. Because one of the yeah. big things for me in terms of we, we keep seeing this eat a plant-based diet, eat more veg, don't be eating animals, you know, cut it out. You know, certainly in our one more thing. Or one little thing, episode uh, one of the Mondays, we sort of said, look, if you can convert from a one meat-based meal a week to a plant-based meal, you'll make a big difference in terms of climate action. But talk to me about what you found really interesting or scary about where food is
1: coming coming from. So three or four years ago, I began to wonder about my diet, but not the effect my diet was having on me, but the effect it was having on the planet, the climate. Um, so I began to record where my food was coming from. Um, and I don't know if you remember the days when we used to be shown the British Empire on yes. maps, and you could see this glorious red swathe of countries all the way across from Canada across North Africa, you know, Central Africa, all the way across to Asia. You could see this fabulous all the way down to Australia. Wave all the Africa. way down to Australia. So I said, um, I said, I wonder. I wonder if I, you know, colour in countries where my food is coming from, will it ever match that suede of red? And I did, and I was shocked. Um, yeah. within two or three weeks of starting that, I just, I just, you know, did it on the spreadsheet. Um, I had the ho- nearly the whole of South America coloured in.
0: So, well, you you go to the supermarket, you pick up an item, and you just check the the sort of origin or, of of the of
1: of the, the, the product, yeah. Um, so I was amazed to find that our apples were coming from Chile, that our potatoes were coming from Israel. Um, obviously, oranges come from somewhere like Spain. That's fine, but there were so many plants that I was buying. I was buying broccoli from the continent. I was buying tomatoes from the continent, um, the continent of Europe. That is, I was buying. Um, obviously, rice comes from the Far East. You would be shocked if you got out a map. And just coloured into countries, you know, on a daily basis where you've bought your, your food in from. And we're talking,
2: we're talking what we would call fresh veg, fresh, fresh veg. fruit. Yeah, yeah.
1: The, the, the staple, the staple vegetarian diet comes from all over the world.
2: Wow. And has have you seen a change over the last five, ten years? Have you seen more local products in or has it got worse? Or? I
1: think fewer local products. I mean... A lot of our fruit and tomatoes and um vegetables came from north county dublin yeah when i was growing up i'm and i know that because i used to um work on the farms and pack them into boxes Yeah. um so i think i think the idea of of buying apples from Chile is crazy um buying potatoes from israel is crazy it is crazy um and if we look at climate change we, we can't we can't claim somehow to be um, divorced or separate from it because it's it's us doing it to ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I think what we have to do as individual citizens now is to put as much pressure as we can on the government, on our local representatives I had, to, to to fix this this flow of food from all over the world. I, I
2: had um, the most amazing, what I call educational, uh, little trip. It just... Five minutes here from our offices in Donabase, up to Malahide. there's an allotment community up there, um, and it's incredible. Um, they are what I call, yeah. they're, they, I, I talked to one guy up there, I had a ramble around, I talked to one guy up there, and he has, he has provided for his family all his veg, all his fruit, for six months of the year. He said he wouldn't be sustainable for the whole year, but six months of the year, he's self-sustainable from, from what he's producing. Um, he knows there's no fertiliser on it. He knows it's grown in the ground. It's it's like, yeah. yeah. It, 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 and, and to see the community that's evolved up there, I think it's something that we'll probably have on a later podcast because mm. I think growing your own food and being that connected to where your food is coming from is probably going to be very, very yeah. important. And
0: yeah. I, I do think it's a, it's a bit of a general public awareness sort of issue, though, as well. Like yeah. I, Speaking personally, I, I wouldn't have even thought of before Shane mentioned it, the, the food miles that go into even just the fruit and veg that we, we get in the supermarket, like it's 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 clearly packa- It's on the packaging and it's there for everyone to see, but it's not something you sort of uh, and g- you give m- a you, second. You
1: mentioned packaging, which is very interesting, yeah. because often you'll find food is produced in, in one country and mm-hmm. then it's packaged in another. in another country before it gets there or it's canned or bottled, Um. so you have to be very careful, you know, even when reading a simple label about where food comes from, it could have been packaged in a different country again and and come to Ireland. Um, so uh, it's very interesting to hear what you said about a lot. Um, for anybody producing their own food, you've got to say that's the way to go. And that's one of the ways. It's one of the it's, ways. It's, it's it's part of the solution for sure because you hand that down to your children, they'll hand it down to their children. Um, so it's an investment not just in I, in the 6 month period that you're I, talking about but i went
2: i went up and i visited um I, a friend of mine has an allotment up there and he was kind enough to give me a bag of potatoes and bag of onions and i'm not joking you i've never tasted a potato like it yeah. it it, we, it it had flavors and we grew them
1: outside um, our back garden my father yeah. grew bro or grew broccoli and potatoes and so cauliflower shame. and everything
2: so Shane, do you believe in climate change
1: well climate change is pretty much the most studied um um phenomenon in in of our generation um it's very clear there is climate change it's very clear we're doing it human beings are doing it um often despite our best efforts we're as culpable as each other there's been a very clear progression in climate change since the industrial revolution um and unless we reverse that very quickly, our grandchildren are going to face the consequences. We won't face the consequences.
2: Well, we're starting to face some um, of the consequences. We, we, we had
1: consequences last week of extraordinary temperatures in August yeah. in the 30s, which I've never known. I've never seen yeah. or felt anything like the heat of last week in August. So, I mean, we've a limited amount of time before we tackle, before we we decide as a world to tackle climate change, which hasn't happened. We're still all doing bits and pieces on our own. There's still a very selfish, short-term, narrow approach to dealing with climate change. It isn't going to work. What is going to work is listening to the science and sticking to the solutions suggested by scientists. If we don't do that, our planet is doomed. The good news is the planet is doomed for humans. It's not doomed for all life. So long after we Put ourselves beyond extinction. There will be life on this planet, but you would like to think. Hopefully, don't put ourselves beyond <laughs> extinction. Well, that's the way we're headed. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, we've been very good at making countries and cultures extinct. I, I find so,
2: I find, I find it inspiring when I see somebody like, for example, if I see somebody like Elon Musk came along, and he said he was trying to. Transition the world to more sustainable transport, and the only way he could do it was by making a car that was cool. So he set out oh, when electric cars that were around at the time were, I don't know what the designers were thinking. They, they 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 were just something that you you just wouldn't want to drive. And if I look now, I travel. I've done an awful lot of traveling with our Cloud Forest business in an electric car. Um, I if I look at, at me being on the motorway it's the exception now if i if i'm passed nearly by you know what i call a nice car they're either hybrids or they're they're electric cars and i just think if you look at climate change and i know what you've said in terms of the science is there but there's a there's a large will there to do something about it now which i haven't seen i didn't see this 10 years ago when it you know 10 years ago when i started my journey really in really worrying when i say worrying worrying about doing something there, while there was an awareness there it was it was nearly it was at a 20 percent level i think everybody's aware now we all have to do something so i'm glad i'm glad that you believe in it
1: well you couldn't not believe in it um <laughs> okay. we, we'll we have, have someone on one day who says no yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah <And then. laughs> we're gonna have to
2: balance this up now on the next podcast yeah well so we well, need... good
1: i mean yeah um debate is at its as best as, you know when there's antagonistic voices. Okay. I'll tell you, funny enough, um, in the late seventies and the early eighties, um, my father was talking about climate change, and um, really? he described he described in great detail the possibilities. And one of the, the, the one of the scenarios that he set out was that planetary warming could cause an ice age, and this was on the basis that the the um, the polar ice caps would melt, and would would, would end up producing the temperature of um, the, the seas um, and oceans of the planet and would cause actually a cooling in, in in at the end of the day. Now that hasn't happened but it does show that there were people thinking very actively about um, the effects of climate change and they were, they've been doing it for a very long time and w- you mentioned 20% there a minute ago, we're still not at a stage where enough people are picking up on climate change and in terms of what you've done and said okay I know about it now what am I going to do about it I'm going to build a forest as in your case I'm going to grow a forest I'm going to grow five forests um which is pretty amazing and that's and the other um contact that you talk about was um the person with the allotments that is the way to go small changes allow to big changes
2: I, I think I think in in terms of community and y- y- your sort of beliefs i'm i'm just going to come along and if we move along slightly i'm i'm really interested at this stage of our sort of interview with you to learn about your career pathway so you got your leaving cert you went to college where'd you go to college i went
1: to um i went to uh, kevin street okay technical college um and i you, i was studying study i was studying applied chemistry there and i was also studying food science and biology so i was it was quite a broad spectrum of subject matter that i was studying i suppose while i was there at kevin street i began to realize and question about what i really wanted to do and um i mean in the, the second summer that i was in kevin street myself and my brother went to germany to work for the summer which broadened my mind um so we would have seen and um, we were working in a fruit factory but we would have worked closely also with the office staff and that seemed to me you know a, a direction that i would have liked to have gone in and i began to think about my father and what he did and he was an accountant so i studied accountancy so i went through my accountancy stage and you know, found it very interesting. Um, I then went and had a couple of jobs working in um, general accounts and then I was a financial controller, Um, which is grand. I mean, you know, it, it, it supported me, it gave me a living. But in 2000, the year 2000, I saw an advertisement for a job as auditor at the Office of the and Auditor General, and as you know, his job, his or her job, is to look at all the funding given to state departments and agencies and make sure it has been spent in the right way and with value for money. So I applied for that. And in 2001, I started in the Office of the Controller so General.
2: Tw- 21 years ago, you started your journey as a civil servant. Yep. What does it mean to you? You went in. Why did you go into the civil service so, first of all?
1: It, okay, so my mother had always. Um, had always kept myself and my siblings um sort of reminded and reminded of how good a job a civil service job was and it wasn't because it was well paid it was because it was permanent and pensionable so it took care you joined the civil service at 18 and that's you were civil service to civil servant until the, the day you died um because you you got paid and then you became a pensioner and you were paid by the civil service so purely as a way of making a living a living that would have been appealed to the very conservative Shane who liked has things, you know, planned out and a good plan for living. Um so when I joined the Office of the Controlling and Auditor General, peculiarly, just to go back to my childhood, like any other family, we often had rows at our Sunday meals and sometimes the rows were about politics and sometimes the rows were about who was a good or a bad person, or what had gone on the week before, or even football. But when I was a very young child, I would say something um, at a meal, and my maybe my father would disagree and say, that's not a fact. And my mother said I'd be gone. I'd be gone upstairs to find a book or a newspaper to back up what I was saying. So when I joined the Office of the Controlling Auditor General, the mindset was very much like that. You went to a client, and we called all people being funded by um, the government. We called them clients, all of those people as clients, no matter how big or small they were. So you went and you looked at the evidence, and from the evidence you made a report. And from the the report would involve saying, here's what's going wrong, and here's how to fix it. Um, Which I thought was bloody (laughs) marvellous. I mean, we could look, we had a card that said we could look at any document whether it was a financial record or not, we could look at any document in in the client. So whether it was the Department of Justice, the Department of Health, whether it was a small hospital, we could look at any document we, we asked for. And I thought that was bloody marvellous as well. But unfortunately what it revealed to me was that amidst a culture of hardworking, conscientious civil servants which make up 97 98 percent of all civil servants and public servants there was a hard core of people who were the opposite and really they weren't doing what they should do they weren't doing a much of what as much of what they could do to make things better and i began to see a pattern of waste right the way across the spectrum um which saddened me and it saddened me more because the controller and auditor general wasn't always able to get to the crux of this waste, to find out, you know, and point out, and fix, which is what we we would ideally have liked to be doing. Um, and very often, and maybe because I am that chap that would disagree, you know, um, and go and find a book with something else, you know written down in it that said well maybe there's a different way to do things or maybe the way we've been thinking is wrong or maybe certain things we assumed to be facts weren't facts at all and I was sort of always that person, um, maybe a little bit maverick and I, I took that into the department of health with me when um I went there in 2019 and that was where i first saw that the department seemed to be gathering information on children with autism just just
2: to stop you there um you were in the controller and Order general's yeah. office and then you made a decision to go to the department of health Held, yeah. was this a decision based on you felt that you could so make i a difference had i had or? received
1: i had received a promotion so i knew i'd be i knew i would be um moving away
2: okay so you knew you were going to be moving yeah. away. I,
1: yeah, so it was a matter for the um, the civil service to decide where I would go. And they decided I'd go to the Department of Health, which I was very pleased with.
2: Okay, so you went into the Department of Health then, same sort of, I won't say gung-ho attitude, I think that's probably wrong, same sort of, I'm going to go in here, I'm going to see if I can make a difference. Is
1: so when I got to the Department of Health, I found the same pattern, 97-98% of my colleagues um, excellent, capable, conscientious, hard-working people who often went way beyond the call of duty and indeed over the, um, the more serious part of the pandemic that we've had there were, off, there were many civil servants working well beyond the hours they're being paid for well beyond the hours they're being paid for with no extra recognition so that's the first thing that has to be said the second thing unfortunately that has to be said is that leaves the 2 or 3% of people were not quite, you know, doing things the right way, or, or maybe doing things that shouldn't be done at all. Um, and it was, you know, in my um, first few months in the department, when I was answering freedom of information requests and parliamentary questions, when I began to notice that, you know, the department seemed to be gathering information on children in a way that they shouldn't. In other words, they were going to HSE doctors, it appeared and asking for information that would help them with, you know, cases, litigation cases.
2: Okay, so, so you've gone in there, you've seen things that you said appeared to be wrong. Mm. What's the process? What's, what so, so, so what the, happens the, then?
1: The process really is you should take it up with your manager straight okay. away. So I presume you did that? No, I didn't <laughs> do that. And here's the reason why I didn't do it. I worked in an area called the Older People's Projects Unit. And that was within the social care division, so really, I had seen files that had nothing to do with my immediate colleagues or my manager, so that it did it just happened on that occasion that that wasn't quite the right thing to do. So what I did do instead was um I wrote a letter to the secretary General of the department, Mr. Breslin, around about um February twenty twenty, and I just explained you know that I needed to speak to somebody about certain issues within the department. Now it took a while, um, but in around July of 2020, I made disclosures to a barrister, um, one Conlet Bradley. Um, he made a report. The department refused to show me the report unless I signed a non-disclosure agreement, which I refused to do.
2: So, sorry, I'm trying to understand the timeline here. That the barrister was appointed by the Department of Health. Yes. You then make disclosures to him. So you then, you then, you you basically get all your. What if I call them grievances uh, about what way things are done? Yeah, out in the open. Yeah, he listens to you. Yeah, he compiles a report and then he yes. gives it to your superiors. Is that the? Yes. W- is that the process? Correct. Yeah. Okay.
1: So uh, around about November of 2020, I expected to see that report because Conrad Bradley emailed me to say he was on his his way that very day to deliver the report. So Naturally, I wrote to the department, the HR section and said, can I please see the report? And I explained the reason I wanted to see the report was because um, I was the only witness. And I wanted to make sure any statement that they'd attributed to me was correct. And I felt really I should have seen that report at draft stage, but nonetheless, I hadn't.
2: You made the disclosures. How do you feel the disclosures were dealt with? How do you feel?
1: So so the, the disclosures involved information gathering by people inv- involved in litigation so i've no i've no background in in law and mr bradley was a senior counsel and a very well respected barrister extremely well respected um so the department told me that mr bradley didn't find anything um any any wrongdoing um which was fine i mean. I, I hadn't found any wrongdoing. What what I had found was an approach by civil servants that could have been far better. Now, as it happens, um, the department refused to show me the report. I mean, which surprised me because if the if the department is getting a report that's giving them a clean bill of health, the first thing they're going to do is start waving it about and showing anybody, okay. you know, the report. Who wants to see it? But they, they refused to show me the report unless they signed a non disclosure agreement which I refuse to do.
2: And what, why would they want you to sign a non-disclosure agreement?
1: Yeah. So let's say you ran, you owned a lar- large okay. corporation, Bernard, um, and somebody came to you one day and said, there's, there's something terribly wrong here, Bernard. And you said, okay, I'm going to organize for somebody to come in, listen to what you have to say and write a report. He'll be a well-respected independent figure. And your employee would go, great, okay. Then from this well respected independent barrister you get back a report saying your organization has done nothing wrong what are you going to do yeah you're going to make sure everybody knows that yeah the last thing you're going to do is say to the guy the employee no you can't see that in ssi in a non-disclosure agreement because that just now does this vacuum and just you know so no 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 um no i think um No corporation, really, that has been cleared of something is going to hide the fact that they've been cleared of something, or or be as defensive as to say, nobody can read that unless they sign a non-disclosure agreement. It just didn't make sense to me.
2: I, I I find it interesting in terms of, do you feel that when, as a whistleblower, and I know you've made amazing sacrifices, incredible sacrifices to, you know, you've put your career on the line. You've... Put your head above the parapet to say I've seen things that are wrong So You're the whistleblower Do you feel Do you feel that whistleblowers are treated fairly Do you feel Like I know numerous whistleblowers And like you read about them every day And the first thing I think of When I hear whistleblower I'm going Oh that must be just somebody making trouble It's just ingrained in me And that's just me uh, what do you feel about it, Alan? it does it have a connotation like whistleblower
0: yeah. I, I I think it does, and I think just to go back to compare it to, say in, in climate action, I think like it's if you look at the the oil companies and that sort of thing and there's 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 one or two whistlers who are coming recently out of Shell and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and um it's it's that sort of why, why would they come out against
2: So, tobacco industry as well? I exactly. had whistleblowers from years ago saying, I've been in here, we've seen the research, cigarettes cause lung cancer. Yeah. And it, there's something, it has to change when somebody comes out and whistleblows. I have a, have a really interesting analogy to this. So, from my time in the security industry, you know, in, uh, at UC.e, I would have dealt with hundreds if not thousands of clients that we would have put in CCTV systems for them or we would have they would have sought my advice to say, I I think I have a problem or maybe I don't have a problem, but I heard you're the guy to come to a little bit like nearly like the equalizer. You you would go out and you'd say, Yeah, okay, you've got in my experience With a shop of your size, with the amount of cash you've got going through your tills, you're going to have X amount of shrinkage from people coming in and stealing. You're going to have X amount of your staff. And they go, oh, no, I don't have a problem with any of my staff. I just really want the CCTV. And I I think I have a problem. My profits are down. And I'm sort of saying to them, well, look, from my experience, Mm. when we put CCTV systems in, And what would ultimately end up happening is they would get the CCTV system in. The CCTV would identify, not all our customers, but it would identify people coming in and stealing, people coming in engaged in fraud with credit cards, with refunds, staff staff coming in and involved in practices that the owner didn't know about. And they would, at every juncture when the CCTV would give them this evidence, they would blame the CCTV, that the CCTV... Had changed the culture in their business mm. yeah. Now the is a dumb box Sort of an intelligent box That just records, it doesn't have a personality It doesn't have uh, Friends, it just Does, it just And it's like an electronic whistleblower It points out problems within your organisation That you may not know you have
0: With no motives, but no with no No motives, yeah, yeah. no
2: agenda, no political leanings No religious leanings, mm. it just sits there And every time when we would when the customer would start the journey going i don't have a problem with my culture they would say i that that cctv has changed the culture in my business since you put that in Mm. i've had nothing but problems
0: shane why like why do you think that whistleblowers? i'm not saying they're not always belief but why is there a sort of a non-belief sometimes
1: um look you, you can read, if you read about um, the history of the Roman Empire, you can read about a group of people called the Laters. And what happened at one time in, in, in actually Rome itself, in the city, was people started to point out corruption. As Rome became a more um, Republican city, people started to point out corruption um, very successfully. Um, and there were rewards for people who pointed out corruption. And they were whistleblowers. What happened then was a group of people called Delayers came along and started making false claims. Okay, so these are people what you spoke about they had a motive. It would either be for money or for political reasons. They would denounce, falsely denounce other people, other politicians, or administrators, officials as being corrupt. So we've we've all always had this sort of um balance between wanting to lend credibility to the whistleblower because it's important, but also, you know, you don't just want to believe somebody without evidence. Um, So it's very difficult when we talk about whistleblowers um, and how to treat them, because very often they come along with no evidence whatsoever. Mm. Um, What you're talking about is an evidence-based, more or less a study of an organisation, and you still have people decrying it. It will always be like that. We're human beings. We depend on each other for so many things. We don't want to think badly. We don't want to think badly of ourselves as a group, as a company, you know, as a nation. Um, You'll often hear people saying, you know, Jesus, Ireland is awful wet. That's grand if we say it, but if somebody comes over and says, we start objecting straight away. True, true. true. Um,
2: So talk to me about finally just to wrap this up and it's great that you've come in today what do you see as real civil service so and what do you and what do you want to be known as
1: so look real civil service and public service there's many different types of civil and public service we have we have doctors we have nurses we have people who are engaged in the environment we have people who are just administrators we have people who are maybe auditors like i was um, a civil servant has to work hard for his money and should and should have an ethos um, of returning value to the taxpayer because the taxpayer is our employer. We might have a, a more immediate employer called the Department of Health or the Office of the Control Audit General um, but our ultimate employer is, is that public taxpayer and they deserve to get the best value they can from you because that's what we expect when we walk into a shop we don't expect to get half an apple You expect to get, you know, fully what you paid for. Um, We don't, we're not quite there yet in Ireland. Um, As I said, 96, 97% of my colleagues are hardworking, conscientious, honest um, civil servants, often going on beyond the call of duty in difficult circumstances and with no recognition. So I just hope, you know, eventually the civil service gets it right, that we're a fully, fully accountable organization that faces up the problems and fixes them okay. for, the, for the good of everybody.
2: Okay. And then a final, final question. Talk to me about what, what has impact this has had there, on your life. You could have, you could have just continued along the path that you're on, taking the paycheck, going yeah. on your holidays, sourcing food locally, going to your GAA matches, cause I know you're a big Dublin GAA fan as well, and played your chess. Done all these things that normal people do that don't, you know, people don't associate with, you know, whistleblowers as a fact. You're a normal person at the end of the day. You're a normal person. So, talk to me about the sacrifices. What's happened in your life?
1: So, there's two things you can expect. And I've been talking to to other people who have um, come into the public domain with um, facts we wouldn't have known about otherwise and the very important members of our society. There's two things you can expect as a whistleblower, and I hear the same story every time I talk to these guys. You can expect vilification and you can expect to be disowned. And I've had both of those experiences, and I've been disowned by people I've known for 20 years. People you work with? People who are ex-colleagues. Um, um, and I've been vilified. I was vilified in the press, the shock. When he discovered that meetings had been recorded and that I had brought the recordings to the press, um, made a lot of very pointed remarks about that, um, and that's the usual, you know, you these ad hominem attacks where you attack the man rather than the problem, um, this will always be a feature of what we call whistleblowing. It just will, it it it's part of what we are. We don't like to see people rock the boat. We don't like to see people that degrade our organisation or bring it into disrepute, even if it's deserved. Um, it's difficult, as I say, vilification and disowning, they are what you'll get. There is no reward whatsoever um, for whistleblowing other than knowing that possibly the facts might be confronted and the problems might be fixed.
2: I'm going to just leave it at this. Would you do it again?
1: Yeah, I will do it again. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Bernard. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Shane. Appreciate it. Thank you.